Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Dan. Yeah, good. How are you? How was your weekend? It was good. It was good. It was raining a bit, wasn't it? So I didn't, didn't get out much. Um, I actually spent quite a lot of time looking up what my car, personal carbon footprint is using various estimators online. Nice. That's a very good use of a rainy weekend. Anything that surprised you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a, I think probably a little bit behind the curve in doing that. I probably should have done that a few years ago, really. But um, yes, in short, very surprising. I was feeling a bit smug going into it, I'll be honest. I was getting ready to pat myself on the back because I've got an electric vehicle and I've got a renewable energy electricity tariff. So I thought that was going to be very good. But I was pretty shocked. I had a very big, bad carbon footprint, basically. And any driver in particular for that bad carbon footprint? Yeah, two, two overall. One, one was flights, and I was basing this off 2019 activity. So, so flights was just by far, by far, far, far and away the biggest thing. I don't think I'm a massively frequent flyer. It was like about eight flights, I think, one of which was longish haul, and the rest were sort of shortish. So, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's, that's quite a lot. It's not loads, loads. So that was just massive. But then, the second one, interestingly, was gas central heating. Really, really big uh, contributor there. Interesting. And I guess that's something that it's hard for you to fully do anything about yourself. Well, yeah, well, that's it. It really interestingly ties into a big report that was also out this week from the International Energy Agency talking about these kind of global net zero pathways. And they're sort of saying that yeah, there needs to be no more new gas boilers installed from 2025. It was obviously quite soon. Yeah. It's something we talked about in the past with Kyle, obviously, as well. It's just a really surprising fact in some ways that gas boilers could be on the way out before we know it, basically. And I saw that. I guess the thing that makes it quite shocking is there isn't exactly a, an answer for what the next thing is right now, is there, in terms of, there are lots of potential answers, but it's not like I say, okay, well, my boiler's gone, so I'll just get the new form of central heating because it's not fully sort of ready yet is it no exactly well that, that, that's a really interesting issue things are just changing so so fast in this whole area with the whole transition which brings us on to the subject of today's podcast really in in, in looking at some of these from an investment risk perspective and trying yeah. to incorporate some of these risks associated with this really rapid transition complete changing in the way we're doing a lot of things um, and trying to talk trying to get that down to the investment risks kind of associated with that absolutely Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So obviously a huge amount of focus at the moment by investors on sustainability, net zero, climate aware investing, responsible investing, and all those sort of good things. And obviously, a lot of that historically has centered, for obvious reasons, on equities and growth assets. But on the podcast joining us today, we wanted to speak to someone who's been doing a lot of research about how that works in bond portfolios, and credit portfolios in particular. So delighted to welcome onto the podcast, LCP's Sham Garriel. Sham, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here and really looking forward to this chat. Absolutely, Sean. Welcome to the show. Before we get started, could you give the listeners just a brief sort of overview of your role at LCP and I guess particularly the bits that are relevant to this conversation? I've been at LCP for about four and a half years now as an investment consultant. I'm specializing in responsible investment. I sit on the sustainability board at the actuarial profession at LCP. I drive some of the research into sustainability or climate aware investment strategies in fixed income and also in infrastructure. 
I've been looking into the sustainability aware credit opportunity for about a year now. And that was, for me, it felt like a natural area to look at for a couple of reasons. And we've got a lot of pension scheme clients, for example, and they're moving away from equities to bonds. And sustainable offerings in equities are pretty well catered for, in bonds less so. So particularly using buy and maintain approach. So that was one reason. And the other reason was that companies raise new finance regularly through bonds, as opposed to equities, where the only time new finance is raised is at IPO or through rights issues. So when you're investing in bonds, basically, you have an impact, your investment, your money does have an impact. And with equities, it's more through the voting and engagement. Sorry. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's a really underappreciated point about fixed income. I mean, everyone knows that equities, you get to vote with your votes, but with fixed income, you get to vote with your dollars or your pounds, so to speak, on a fairly frequent basis. So lots of opportunity there. Well, absolutely. Really keen to get into some of the research you've done. Before we do, Sham, just quickly, why don't you tell us something we should know about you we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile? Well, I love urban music, in particular, jungle, and I am a grime and dubstep MC. I've been on a radio show since 2012 on Sub FM with my DJ. And I've also just written a hip hop inspired children's book called The Boogie Woogie Monster, which is <laughs> out now, available at Shookbop, which is an independent bookstore online. Fantastic. And we'll absolutely link to that in the show notes. Dan, you were just saying you've just bought the book, have you? Yeah, I have. I have. Obviously, I'm in the market for children's books these days, so it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> It's a lovely little book, isn't it? It just arrived this morning, actually. I was just saying what a slick sales experience it was on the website as well. It was all very well set up. So I can thoroughly recommend that. You should put some links into some of your musical tastes as well, Sean, to give people an idea. Yeah, no worries. Absolutely. So on to the subject for today. The first thing I was keen to do is effectively a bit of jargon busting. So we've talked about a focus on sustainability and probably most of us have heard of green bonds, but can you just give us a sort of really quick headline? What's the difference? Because they're not the same thing, are they? You've got green bonds or social bonds or sustainability linked bonds. And these are bonds which ring fence the capital for green or social projects. So as an investor in green bonds or social bonds, you know what your money's being used for and there's reporting involved with that as well. What we're looking for here in these strategies is investing in regular corporate bonds. There could be green bonds in a portfolio as well, but generally it's regular corporate bonds. And the decision making by the fund manager would take explicit account of sustainability issues, such as the environment, empowerment of people, so gender equality and education, et cetera, healthcare, or The big focus that we've had in the investment industry recently is on climate issues, and that's obviously going to be a focus for quite some time going forwards. So in these areas, it would be looking at companies and looking at their decarbonisation plans, making sure that if there are plans in place, companies are actually doing things in line with those plans and sort of limiting the portfolio exposure to those that are perhaps not doing enough and they're leaving themselves exposed. And from the perspective of decarbonisation, I sort of grapple with this a fair bit when I'm thinking about the right way to invest and to put your money where your mouth is. So you can invest in a green bond that has a very specific use of the capital. 
or you can invest in a portfolio that's got a sustainability focus. And for example, you might be investing in a company that's on a journey and making good steps on that journey. Presumably, we need people to keep investing in not just green bonds to put their money where their mouth is, because everyone needs to be on this journey. So you actually want to be supporting companies that are improving their practices overall, rather than companies that issue some green bonds and some non-green bonds. I don't know if they get a specific colour, where actually the company as a whole might not be improving what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about companies that are issuing green bonds and regular bonds, I suppose, is that we might expect to see investors drawn towards green bonds and paying a bit higher price for those. We don't see that always. It's not always the case, but sometimes that happens. And that's why finances at companies would choose to issue green bonds. And that might push the company in a certain direction. If they can obtain cheaper finance through going through greener projects, then it might push the company in that direction. So green bonds, I think, are quite useful in some ways. But looking at some of the academic studies into whether companies do get cheaper financing through issuing green bonds suggests that on average, in Europe, yes, they might do. So investors perhaps are paying a little bit over the odds. But like I said, this is not the rule. And there's definitely times where the green bonds are trading over or under a regular bond if you try and equate them to a regular bond. But in the US, there didn't seem to be any real difference between the green bonds and the regular bonds there. And that's particularly interesting, I guess, particularly in the last sort of four or five years with Trump being in power and the sort of policies within the US versus places like Europe. Definitely. Europe's definitely leading the way in this area. Anything sustainability focused, Europe's leading the way. America is catching up. And Joe Biden's first 100 days have seen a lot of encouraging signs there. They seem to be getting back on track. And he's done all the right things so far. And now it's just a question of implementing. So we'll see how things pan out over there. But it's exciting. So interesting. So good little explainer there on green bonds. As you said, so Green bonds is actually not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sort of your conventional, your normal common or garden sort of corporate bond portfolio, but just tilting that back towards more sustainably focused companies. And I guess you sort of alluded to this at the start. I mean, that's been something obviously that in equities has been a reasonably well-trodden path over the last couple of years, I think fair to say. Seen quite a lot of indices come out that tilt away from well, ESG indices quite often using the big providers ESG scores or particular climate focused ones, obviously, that we've been reasonably big users of in terms of tilting away from more carbon intense companies. And I suppose it's what we're looking at here is that movement sort of coming towards bonds. But I guess the first question to address is maybe, see, a lot of managers have done a lot of work to integrate ESG into their processes more generally. So I suppose maybe the first question is why do we need to do anything more than what's already being done by managers on the ESG sort of criteria? I think you can look at a regular approach where you're integrating ESG just fine. You're taking account of ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, and you could still decide that investing in a coal company, for example, made sense over the next sort of five to 10 years. And that's sort of the manager's view on those sort of things. If you wanted to take a stronger view on that, if you thought over the 
short term even, things can change quite rapidly. And they have changed very rapidly in ESG space and sustainability space recently. Would holding a bond in a coal company for five to 10 years be risky? And I think the answer is, in that example, definitely yes. But if you're looking at companies perhaps not so extreme, not investing in coal, there's also risks there. And if companies are not changing their approaches and getting themselves aligned with a low carbon future, there is a chance they will be left behind. Your short term risks generally revolve around the investor sentiment changing. Investor sentiment can change very, very quickly. And then there are other risks on the horizon. So your medium term risks, which surround carbon pricing, emissions trading schemes. So if emissions trading schemes are being put in place, or if they're emissions trading schemes that are already in place widen their scope to cover different industries that are not currently being covered, those are risks. We've seen short-term risks play out very recently. This is all talking about the climate side of things now, but we've seen short-term risks in Shell and BP last year, both writing down a huge amount of their assets. I think it was around $20 billion each. That's a great example of a short-term risk playing out. So those are stranded assets. And if we're to meet our climate goals, we just can't burn all the fossil fuel reserves that companies have actually been valued on. So there is likely to be a hit to security prices along the way. Will that be the last time that fossil fuel companies have to write off assets? Personally, I doubt it. I don't think that these write-downs have been priced in to a great extent. And of course, with sustainability issues, broader sustainability issues than just climate, we've seen anti-racism statements following Black Lives Matter last year. Lots of companies have been supporting this. They probably don't want to get caught out. If they get found out that their, for example, pension scheme is investing in companies that support structures in society that go against that, that's a risk. There are other big, big sustainability issues on the cards here. The World Economic Forum has looked at a number of these. Climate risk is high up there, of course. We've got other ones there, which are huge. Water scarcity, that's very high on the World Economic Forum's risks. And we've seen in South Africa, in Cape Town, they've run out of water, or nearly, they nearly ran out of water a few years ago. But developed countries are also at risk in these sort of areas, and that can cause havoc through supply chains and across economies, biodiversity loss or, or nature loss. That underpins 50% of global economic activity. Now, we've wiped out 83% of animals already on the earth, and half of all the plants. In the context of health and pandemics, which we've just seen now and we're going through at the moment, nature and biodiversity provides us with medicines. The loss of nature puts us in closer contact with animals that can spread viruses to humans. COVID was actually the fifth pandemic we've had since 2002, and it won't be the last given the way we're treating the environment. But we've seen how badly that's impacted companies, impacted economies. So we just can't treat the environment, broader sustainability issues as separate from financial issues any longer. And when we think of sustainability specific portfolios, and in this episode, of course, we're talking about credit and particularly buy and maintain credit. If we're, I guess, comparing 
a mandate that's got to focus on sustainability with certain clauses in the agreement with the investment manager versus, as sort of Dan hinted at, a sort of traditional, if you like, buy and maintain approach where the manager hasn't been forced to have a specific focus, but they may well have a focus on certain issues because they are risks. Do we have to give anything up? So when we've been doing this with clients, are we finding that you have to let go of some return? Are you having to let go of some diversification within the portfolio? Are we having to pay more? What's the experience been? Well, from the research we've seen, there's a few different answers to those questions. And thinking has changed rapidly across the investment industry over the last few years. But it's fair to say that some companies have evolved quicker than others. And so you can do more with some bond managers than you can with other bond managers. So what we've seen in terms of yield is that you can create a portfolio that has an equivalent yield basically to a regular portfolio. You can create a sustainability aware portfolio or a climate aware bond portfolio that has an equivalent yield to a regular bond portfolio. The things you might be giving up in return for that, so you're reducing risks in some areas like climate change or sustainability, but there are other risks that might increase. And what we've seen is that the concentration of the portfolio would increase. What we've seen there is that it increases by a little bit. So you're talking, say a portfolio had 150 issuers, you might increase the concentration by 10 to 20 issuers or something like that. And those sort of magnitudes generally we're quite comfortable with. The other trade-offs might be geographically. So, of course, relative value changes over time. And the UK and US have been more attractive yield-wise than Europe has recently. But when interest rates are hedged back to the UK, there's less differentiation. But European companies are generally, as I mentioned before, more sustainability-focused than US companies. So you might see some changes in that area. And then in terms of sectors, Another concentration risk there is you might end up with too many financials. They can end up featuring heavily as they offer long-dated corporate bonds and generally a low emissions. But in that instance, though, on the financial side of things, particularly on the climate side, you can look at other factors such as the financing of emissions. So you can take into account the risks that those financials face through their loan portfolios. Broadly speaking, you're saying no sort of yield impact for putting in some of these sustainability criteria onto the portfolios, which would effectively mean these are not currently being priced by bond markets. Is that fair? I think that's broadly fair enough. But like I said, some managers who didn't have quite as developed thinking in the areas, it looked as though their portfolios would give up some yield. So it kind of depends on which fund manager you go with, if they're good in this area they can generally do something, which is a reasonable solution. One other point I want to come back to just super quick, this back to this question of why not sort of leave it with the manager who's integrating sustainability characteristics anyway. You came back with a really comprehensive answer on why you shouldn't do that. And I guess one point is often, I think it's all about how it's framed and the starting point. I mean, if you go back to equities, it's really easy. If things are framed in terms of a benchmark, that doesn't include any sustainability or environmental criteria, then that's going to really influence where managers get to. The same in active corporate active bonds and the difference in bonds there. If you've got a benchmark, that's going to really frame where the portfolios start from. And we've jumped into talking about buy and maintain, I guess. So there's a subtle difference there between actively managed portfolios. I still think that the framing of it, and we'll call it a traditional 
investment world, the framing of it influences where it gets to so much that there's this need to sort of reframe it completely as a sustainable aware portfolio, which then, even though by maintain sort of is a blank sheet of paper in the first place, it's just that framing effect, which is so powerful if you don't do this explicitly. That's my way of sort of explaining it anyway. Definitely. And we were focusing on the long term and these by maintain portfolios in general. We're trying to reduce trading costs philosophically, sustainability. You're looking at long term issues. You're looking at longer term holdings. And if you've got sustainability or just climate type focus, that fits quite well, in my opinion. So a lot of these climate risks, a lot of the shorter term stuff we're talking about, there's potentially quite a lot of stuff playing out over the next even 10 years talking about potential carbon tax, carbon pricing, certain sectors being regulated out, combustion engines kind of being regulated out sort of thing. I mean, the maturities of these bonds is what, sort of 10, 12 years average. So a lot of them will be maturing, so that's duration, a lot will be maturing in 20 years. So well within the scope of these sort of changes. Exactly. Yeah, big changes ahead. Are you looking at the UK? We're going to have no internal combustion engine sales after 2030. So that's a big issue. Are these companies going to be able to change? It's a big ask, no doubt about that. And even if companies are sort of focusing on that now or have been focusing on it, it's still going to be quite a big process. And if you focus on the auto sector alone, you're looking at a real fundamental shift there from a company that deals with engines and deals with how different parts move and they gain competitive advantage over the lubricants used, whereas they're going to have to start becoming more like software companies with electric vehicles. So they're two very different types of companies and how the transition affects different companies is going to be interesting as well. Absolutely. So Sham, you've worked with a number of our clients on these sorts of projects where you're looking to integrate sustainability type targets, I suppose, to portfolios. How do people get started? What's step one when you're speaking to a client about these sorts of things? Well, the first step would just be to see, obviously, what their appetite is in this area, if they believe it's worthwhile going down this route. And a lot of investors do think it is, particularly because bonds have not been looked at in great detail up until recently. And being at the forefront of this probably does pay off. Because once everybody's sort of looking at sustainability aware or climate aware bonds, there may be some repricings there. So it might well be a good opportunity to do that now. Just quickly, Mary sort of alluded to this earlier that for a lot of our defined benefit pension clients, I mean, they're either already substantially in bonds or are going to be switching a lot into bonds over the next 10 years. So for a lot of those clients, when you say, well, where are most of their climate risks going to be? If not already, there's certainly the climate risks are going to be in that bond portfolio sort of in the future, aren't they? Any DB scheme that's sort of de-risking into sort of bonds, I think is a really strong case for having a good look at this sort of stuff. And then it's trying to figure out, are we focusing on climate metrics? Like I said before, climate change has taken the limelight recently. So investors are a little bit more comfortable with climate change type metrics. And there are increasingly more climate metrics available, increasingly better data. So it can be easier to go down that route as a first step. And the sustainability type portfolio, sustainability issues, they're broad. There are a lot of them. It can take some understanding, but those would perhaps be a next step on. But some investors are looking at 
broader sustainability issues as well. So once you've figured out what you're looking at in particular, from what we've seen in our research, there are managers that do one thing better than the other. There are fund managers who do the sustainability type portfolios better and others who do climate change solutions in a better way, in our view. And when you have a client that has, you've been through sort of steps, I guess, one and two, as you've just described them, and you've worked out what specific focus that client wants in their portfolio, and you've approached a number of managers to see what their ideas are. Are we finding that the range of solutions that are offered in response is quite a big range or actually are the criteria quite specific? And so what you come back with is relatively similar between different managers. In terms of the solutions, there's all sorts of different thought processes that have gone into this. One is just looking at the current risk exposures and reducing them. So you just take out the worst offenders. That's been offered as a solution to us. You just take out the worst offenders. Now, but that's not a long-term solution. It's an action at one point in time. And if the market improves, the portfolio could become relatively more risky in future. So that's, we feel, quite a blunt way of doing things. It says nothing about the plans or policies in place at these companies to improve over time or their capabilities to improve over time. For example, if we just focus on the climate aware type portfolios, it's easy to remove a few high emitters. You can remove less than 5% of your portfolio and reduce your emissions risk by magnitudes of 30 to 50%. But it completely misses the expected future trajectory of emissions for these companies. These high emitters could be in the process of decarbonizing to a greater extent than some lower emitting companies. And so it doesn't always make sense to just take that blunt approach. So ideally, we want something more forward looking. So for climate change, again, focusing on climate change, we've seen some fund managers using internal models to project carbon emissions forward over the next 10, 15 years. They include all sorts of different factors in that modeling, such as governance, reporting. Are there people on the board with responsibility for climate or sustainability issues? Are they reporting to CDP, formerly Carbon Disclosures Project? Do they have targets in place? Do they have science-based targets in place to reduce emissions? You can also look at the industry. The industry is obviously very important that you're invested in and what other policies that the companies put in place. And then you just sort of set the products and the operations of those companies. You set all these policies against that and look at the value chain as well, see that if there's risks there. That forward-looking piece is a really interesting bit, isn't it? And that's been one thing that it took me a little while to get my head around in this whole thing, that you sort of it's easy to latch on to the emissions stats today because that's what's easy to measure. Well, not easier to measure. It's getting reasonably well known out there. But I've seen some good examples, people saying that you take the steel industry, for example. Most of us probably agree that steel is something that's going to exist for decades, but you might have a high emitting steel company today that's on a really good plan to transition and be a part of a low carbon world. And that might actually have less climate risks attached to it than a relatively low emitting firm today that's not on the same journey. So trying to assess that forward looking piece is quite powerful when you think about it, quite subtle. There's other levers as well. You could consider in a bond market, how do you gain access to a bond? So you either buy it 
once when it's first released, so primary issuance, or you buy it from another investor on the secondary market. And so the primary issuance provides that finance to continue or expand a company's operations in whatever areas they choose to do that in. So investors, they quite like going in at the primary issuance as the bonds tend to be a little bit cheaper than after they've been issued. So investors can choose perhaps not to participate in the primary issuance. Now, the real effect of this is when bonds are not massively oversubscribed. So if they're oversubscribed, they're not taking part in a subscription, a primary issuance won't overly affect the company. But we don't know when that may change. And it sends a message to companies and other investors too. But that could change that the oversubscription rates fall quite quickly. On the secondary markets, like I said before, it's a bit like buying equities in that the finance has previously been raised and the secondary market trades just put money into another investor's pockets. But you still, once you own that bond, you have exposure and you can engage with a company. Engagement, of course, is very important with bonds as well. And you can do that on primary issuance, like before it's been issued, pre-issuance stage. Perhaps you can get more favorable terms or something like that. And then after issuance, you can engage as well. And some of the managers we've spoken to have focused on engaging on getting their portfolio companies to set up climate type targets and to improve their disclosures. So a whole range, basically, of areas that you can effectively ask managers to focus on when they're choosing bonds. So you've got the sort of current risk factors, you've got the longer term risk factors and particular importance for those, but also the engagement. And so would all of those sorts of things they'd all be written into the investment management agreement, or they could be. Exactly. You can write a lot of these things into the investment management agreement. There are some sort of issues with writing these targets into investment management agreements in that the fund manager generally is one of many investors, and they perhaps won't want to hang their hat on meeting some of these targets, but they can work towards them, definitely. The way you've been talking about it, the work we've done with asset managers, I can sort of sense the answer to this, but is it fair to say that we're perceiving a difference in the way asset managers are approaching this sort of as distinct from their differences in skill levels in managing bonds more generally? So that there's sort of another thing that's being assessed in sort of the managers. It is. And when we've spoken to fund managers about this topic, some of them have come with some really interesting proposals. They've brought in specialists to help them out with some of these proposals as well. So yeah, there's some very interesting proposals that have been sent through. Others, like I said, there perhaps needs to be a little bit more engagement with specialists in that area. And I think we've mainly been speaking about this in the context of bespoke portfolios. So you can engage with the manager and have some quite specific guidelines. But I understand we are working on hopefully launching or being involved before the launch of a pooled fund approach for those smaller clients that aren't able to do something bespoke. Interestingly enough, one of the ideas behind this project was to see if we could get some fund managers to develop a pooled offering so that smaller clients could also be invested in a buy and maintain type pooled fund, which is sustainability or climate aware. And just through doing the request for proposal, we've seen managers say that This is something new that they've had to consider. And it also made sense for them to then think about pooled funds. So just by doing the request for proposal, we've seen a couple of fund managers 
look at their pooled offerings a little bit harder. And we expect to see some of those being launched very soon. Great, Sean. But a great conversation as we're sort of wrapping up then. What's one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this? Well, it is something we have discussed through the episode. And it is just that it is possible to invest in sustainability aware or climate aware bond strategies while making returns equal to those in regular bond strategies. Some fund managers still haven't put the thought into this space and they probably can't provide that same solution, but quite a few can. Brilliant. Okay. So it's possible and you need to make sure you're partnering with the right manager that's done enough thinking about this. Sharm, on a slightly broader note, what do you think's the one thing that's most underappreciated about investing? The most underappreciated thing about investing, I think the appreciation of this is changing now, but I think it's still quite underappreciated, is that the investment world does not exist in a silo and that it impacts and is impacted by the environment and social issues. So I find that many people in this industry still don't seem to appreciate that, or maybe they don't want to. We focus on returns without consideration of much else, and that's made us lose sight of the need for the ultimate customer, the pension scheme members, those taking out insurance, those benefiting from charity investments. And that ultimate customer is putting their money to work to improve their lives in some way. Now, money alone can't solve a crisis like a climate crisis or a loss of nature once it's gone too far but it definitely can make things a lot better along the way. Fantastic. And a good reminder there of the importance of those issues. Definitely. Sharm, any good recommendations for us? We've already going to make a note about your children's book, but any podcasts you've been listening to, books you've been reading that you'd want to share with us? I would like to shout out a podcast and an email newsletter, actually. So the actuarial profession here in the UK has some sustainability podcasts that they produce every now and then and those focus on a range of issues it's sustainability development goal focused so covers a broad range of topics and how investment professionals or actuaries are dealing with those areas that was the first shout out and the second and that's called what sorry go on sorry that one you'll find on the actuaries.org.uk website or through your podcast provider. And if you search for the IFOA sustainability podcasts, you should be able to find them. The other thing I wanted to shout out was the IFOA's sustainable finance community newsletter and LinkedIn group. And this is a roughly weekly newsletter that gets sent to you with short summaries of the latest developments in sustainability. And that is really well put together. It's not too basic, but it provides you with a sample of what's going on in this very, very fast moving area. Super stuff. We'll get some links to those on the show notes on the webpage. Bisham, it's been such a great conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Sham, it's been a pleasure. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Tune in next week for another episode in our mini-series on how institutional investors invest. See you then. Bye. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.